as I was trying to figure out uh, how in the world we should end this series and uh, what passage might I come out of, uh, I have been reading through the Psalms um, ever since I went on sabbatical in May. And so, and I've been reading really slowly through the Psalms. So ultimately what I did was I just closed my eyes and I just went, which Psalm? And I pointed, no, that's not what I did. Um, I started reading the Psalms and um, about three weeks ago, this Psalm stood out to me. The Lord just used it. And I thought, what an appropriate way to pick a Psalm is that just in normal everyday spending time with Jesus, he uses his word, a Psalm that I didn't know really well at all, but he used it to strike my heart. Because the point of this series in rest is that we would be still. We would sit still before the Lord and we would ask him to move in our lives. So that was one reason why we're in Psalm uh, 31. And another is what we find in verse 1. And we'll read verses 1 through 8, although we'll look at the entire psalm. Is that as I have studied this idea of rest, one word that regularly comes up is this word refuge. So what does it mean for God to be a refuge to us? And in understanding that, we will understand rest. And when we understand rest, out of a quiet soul, burst the flower of a quickened heart of love for our neighbor. So may the Lord help us to be disciples and to make disciples by being still and quickened. So I want to read verses 1 through 8, and then I'll pray, and we'll dive right in, okay? <clears throat> the Word of God says this, Psalm 31, verses 1 through 8. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me. A strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your namesake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me because you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I'll rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul. You have not delivered me into the hands of the enemy. Instead, you have set my feet in a broad place. Let's pray. Father, many of us come experiencing pain either from within or from without. Harsh words struggle to leave our minds. Difficult situations we'd rather avoid but can't seem to get out of them. And we just experience pain that we would, if we had a choice, we would avoid, and yet we are in it. And in the midst of all of that, you show us how good you are, how just you are, how loving you are, and you call us to make you our refuge. And you promise to be that for us that we might find rest for our souls in Christ alone. So, Father, I pray that we would hide our hearts in you and that we would find you as our greatest source of comfort and rest and meaning and significance and security. Be our refuge today, we pray. In Christ's name, 
Amen. Well, I'm a daddy of four kids, and with all four of them, I have played at different times the game hide and seek. Now, some of you have played hide and seek. Some of you might be better at it than others. But when you play hide and seek, there is a, uh, there, there's a strategy to it where you actually want to hide in order not to be found. But there are some times when the people who play, they just don't quite know how to play very well, and they're bad at it. So I want to show you some pictures of people who are bad at hide and seek. enough. Enough examples of people that I could probably even beat in hide and seek. So those precious kids um, have not chosen the best places to hide. The point of the game is where you hide matters, right? If, you're, if your aim is to win, where you hide matters. And if your place that you're hiding is too small, like the kid behind the tree, then you're too exposed and you lose. And that is the way the game is played. But there are times when hiding is actually a matter of life and death. If you're in a war and someone says to you, take cover, where you hide is of ultimate importance. Do you find a place where you are exposed to the enemy? Then you could literally lose your life. Where you hide matters. And spiritually speaking, God has said, I am your refuge. Hide in me. But there are so many ways that we can hide in the wrong place personally. And it leads to disappointment. It leads to fear. It ultimately leads to insecurity. I'll even tell you, while I was preparing for this message, I was almost done with it and just working through it. And the Lord just struck me. Because as I was working through it, I was struggling. I was just like, should I include this or not? Should I use this or not? And it was almost like an audible voice. It wasn't. But it was just this strong impression of, who are you doing this for? And I got this sense that I was trying to include certain quotes or certain stories or do certain things in order to impress you, not to serve you. What is that an example of? It's an example of something that in some of the most prayer-filled moments, I can still make a right turn and find my refuge in your opinion of me rather than my refuge in God alone. And the question is, where are you hiding? Where are you placing your hope? Where, when you are struggling, are you finding your comfort? Where are you getting the meaning of your life? It is, it, is it in always being right? Usually the sign is you're pretty defensive when someone says you're wrong. 
Is it the sign of always having to know something? Is it being a ref, finding your refuge in what you have? As long as I have this, I'm good. As long as I have this type of house or this type of car, I'm good. We can put our heart and our hopes and our value in something else. And that something else can become an ultimate refuge for us. But in the midst of this psalm, what we do is we see an individual who is suffering. And what suffering does is it begins to show us where our true hope and significant rests. And the psalmist kind of begins this whole psalm and then has this massively wandering path to kind of get there. But he begins this psalm by saying, In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. I'm choosing to put everything in on you. I want you to be my place of security. So where you hide matters. And ultimately, the psalm is calling us to hide in the Lord. And so there's two main ideas that we're going to go after today. The first one's found in verses 1 through 8. The second are found in verses 9 through 24. The first is this, and that is, Jesus Christ, our great God, is more secure than anything else I could rest in. So I rest in him. Jesus Christ is more secure than anything else I could rest in. And so I rest in him. But the second, what we begin to see is that Suffering begins to test whether you're finding rest in the Lord. And so what we see the psalmist doing is declaring that in our suffering, God is more just, loving, and good than I can understand or comprehend. And because of that, because he is just, loving, and good, I can rest in him. The point and the end of this series is it's a call for us to find our refuge, our rest in Christ alone. So let's look at this first one, that Jesus is more secure than anything else I could rest in. So I rest in him. Why in the world does the psalmist begin with this verse? In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. What in the world is going on that he feels like he needs to hide or take shelter in God himself? What's going on? Well, if you read and if you were listening, you begin to hear some kind of alarming phrases that give you tips as to what's going on in the psalmist's life. Let's look at it. The very first verse, deliver me, okay? Whatever reason, he's in a situation where he needs to be delivered. Verse 2, incline your ear to me and rescue me speedily. He's in a predicament where he needs to be rescued, We go on and we see verse 4. You take me out of the net they have hidden from me. So now you get this picture of enemies trying to ensnare in some type of net. And he's asking God to pull him out of the snare of other enemies. Verse 6. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols. What is that? He's following a certain direction and giving his heart to God. And others around him are not. They're giving themselves to the things of the world, to things that are alluring but always let down, and it's leading them to be against him. And then verse 7, we begin to hear the psalmist talk. He says, I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction and you have known the distress of my soul. You have 
not delivered me in the hands of my enemies. What is he saying? This psalmist is in suffering. Psalmist is in affliction. This psalmist is in pain. And what is the call of one who finds themselves in such dire straits? It is that God would be their refuge. That's why he's saying it. Because whenever things kind of shake around us, we struggle with security. Probably one of the greatest problems in the heart of man today is security. For some of you, it's financial security is in question. I don't have financial security. I don't even know what, if I know what that means, financial security. What is that? And you're worried about your finances. Others, it's physical security. I just wish my body would heal. I wish I'd be stronger. I wish my mind wouldn't give out. Others of you, it's religious security. How do I know that I have assurance? What do I do with my doubts and my skepticism and my fear? And you just feel unsettled. Others of you, in this season of election, it's national security. It's, is our nation imploding? And will we be attacked from outside? There's just fears about what's happening in government. And you're worried. Or there's internal security. You just are really wrestling with, where do I find my significance? Am I really valuable? Am, am I, do I really have a good purpose? It's all around this issue of not being secure or being insecure. And what happens when people are insecure? A couple things, a couple three. Many times insecure people get consumed with themselves. They're like, what do people think about me? Am I significant? What will make me significant? And they just get so stuck in their own brain thinking about how people look at them or what, they, what, what people are thinking of them and they just get all inward and therefore short-sighted. Insecure people also get afraid. What's going to happen to my life? Will enemies prevail? Will this one who's always doing bad to me, will, will the bad keep happening? Will my circumstances get the best of me? It's fear, fear after fear after fear. And then insecurity can also breed anger. You just get frustrated, right? You, you, can't, you can't control what's going on. And so when things slip through, you just get angry. You get, you're like a time bomb. And those around you just get the, the lashing of your tongue or the coldness of your stare or the rolling of your eyes to make them feel guilty when they don't even know what they've done wrong. And you're just an angry in your heart. Because ultimately, you're, you don't know how to control or fix it. You're insecure. And the psalmist here is experiencing this sense of insecurity all around him. But not only is the psalmist experiencing a sense of insecurity from outside of him, he's also experiencing a sense of insecurity from inside of him. Look at verses 9 and 10. He says, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief. He has just almost cried every tear he can cry. My soul and my body also, I'm just, you know, when you have just been emotional, you just physically get exhausted. You're just worn out. You can barely pick up your body. You just, you sleep a lot. So my soul and my body, there's a sense of weariness. But why? It's not only because he's insecure because everything around him seems unsettled. 
Look at what he says in verse 10. For my life is spent with sorrow, my years with sighing, my strength fails because of my sin. He's not only getting people sinning against him and hurting him, he's also actually hurting himself through choosing to dive into things that would destroy him by trying to set his affections on things that only prove to hurt him. His sin is making him weak. It even says in verse 10, my bones waste away. This is why when we began this series to find rest, there is an inextricable bond between repentance and rest. When we sin... We are not at rest because we are not making God our refuge. And so with all of this pressure from without, which you know and you've experienced in some way, shape, or form, and the internal pressure, what in the world is going to happen with my sin? What do I do with my bones wasting away? There's this massive flag of hope that is over the entire psalm. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. He tells us his end result at the beginning because as you read through this, you're going to see this psalmist is like you and I. He's a train wreck. At one moment, he's going great. And at another moment, he's just spewing at the mouth all of the struggles that are going on. But he wants us to know as we read this that the end result is that the Lord, you are my refuge. And so we need to know what that means. What does it mean for God to be a refuge? And I remember sitting and meditating on this. And friends, this is, this is what it means to kind of read the scriptures. It's not just reading for information. It's processing for how it applies to the heart. And when the word refuge is mentioned four or five times in the first eight verses, even a hard-headed guy like myself is like, okay, maybe there's a point he's trying to get across here. I should understand what refuge means. And so he helps me with it. The Bible interprets the Bible. He helps me with it. And he says, you know, do, oh Lord, I take refuge in you. And then he goes down, verse 2, be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. So I'm supposed to get this image of, of a fortress and a rock. And then he goes on to say, verse 3, for you are my rock and my fortress. He says in verse 4, you are my refuge. You begin to see that he really wants us to meditate on this idea. And so as I began to think, why does he use image of refuge? Or why does he use image of fortress? It made me think, of course, of what he's talking about specifically, of some type of military excursion. And so you can think about maybe a bunker. You're running through the, through the field and you dive into something like this. And when you dive in, and bullets are whizzing by, there's this sense that although things are all around you, for just a brief moment, you're protected from things that are flying at you. And so there's this sense of protection or this sense of rest or this sense that, okay, now I can get ready for the battle that's to come. But the image that's used here in Psalm 31 is not just of a bunker that's exposed it's of a fortress. It's of something more like that. This kind of 
fortress on a hill, walls that cannot be penetrated back in those days by any weapon that was there. They would throw massive rocks or cannonballs to try to get rid of that. But what does it mean for God to be a fortress? And here are three things that kind of came to mind as you read the scriptures and as you begin to meditate on this image that's right there before you. God as a fortress. Number one is that he is strong when you are not. That's what it means for God to be a refuge. It means he is strong when you are not. The image is, I'm running, the enemies are pursuing me, the doors fling open to that fortress, and I run through, the doors close behind, the enemies can no longer get me, and I fall flat on my face with zero energy at all. What are those walls doing? They are protecting. They're giving me a chance to rest. There's this sense of, Personnel come and they bandage my wounds. They give me food. Spiritually speaking, angels come to strengthen. God's word and his Holy Spirit give you hope. He is strong when you are not. That's what it means for God to be your refuge. You are leaning on him to be what you can't be. But the second image is there as well. Not only is he strong when... I am not, but he fights for me and he strengthens me. When I'm laying face down on the ground behind those walls, there's the archers that come out over the bulwarks and they're shooting out and the cannons go forward while I'm being strengthened and helped and ministered to. There's this sense of the Holy Spirit comforts when you are struggling and he fights for you. You're not left to fight battles alone spiritually. He is with you and he never leaves you. But here's what's interesting, I think, about this issue of fortress. That as you read the scriptures, not only is he strong when you are weak, and not only is he fighting for you when you can't fight for yourself, but what happens when you're behind these walls, after you're strengthened, the general comes and he gives you the orders of how to continue to fight. And many times it would be sending you out that front door to go and attack the enemy. But not our God. This fortress doesn't stay stationary. And he doesn't say, go out on your own. And then if you get really tired and weary, come back to me. This this refuge, this fortress moves. God is always with you. He fights for you and never leaves you. It's this crazy image of of those walls always being around you no matter where you go. That ultimately, even though enemies attack, we know that because of Jesus Christ, he has put an end to sin. He has defeated the grave. Death will not ultimately have its victory because he has been raised up again. And there is this sense that no matter what befalls us, no matter what suffering comes our way, our God is always doing good to us, always caring for us. He is a refuge. He always has a plan. So our security then, spiritually speaking, when God is our refuge, our security is not that we won't ever be hurt from outside. Our security is not that we're going to be perfect and therefore, oh, I don't do wrong, so I'm not going to have that internal angst. No, you're all sinners and we all have that internal struggle with shame and guilt. The cross 
renders forgiveness for those who repent. But what about for those enemies that are outside of you? Your security is that no one can hurt you until God allows and he has secured your forever through faith in him. So you can say, if I live, it's Christ, and to die is gain. And you're like, but oh God, I struggle to understand that. I, under, I struggle to understand how any pain could be good. Well, before we answer that question, we need to see what it looks like for someone who's made God their refuge, what it looks like for them to talk. Because this is what it looks like in verses 3 through 8. When the Lord is the refuge of the psalmist, here's how he talks. He says, for you're my rock. You're firm when everything else is shaky. You're my fortress, my protection. And he says, verse 3, for your namesake, you lead me and guide me. Now that's different many times than how we attempted to talk. It's, I don't know what the future is. I need you to lead me and to tell me what the future is. I need you to guide me and to help me to know which way I should go. But what is that kind of end result? We get peace when he kind of tells us, oh, this is the path. This is different. When God is your refuge, you're saying, lead me and guide me so that you might use me so that people would see you and not me. Do you see that? For your namesake, lead and guide me. When someone finds God as their refuge, they want God to be seen. Their main ambition and desire is that God would be treasured and loved and be seen through their lives. And so they say, lead me wherever you want to lead me. Guide me wherever you want to guide me. I trust you with the details. Do it for your namesake that people will know how wonderful and worthy you are. That's what it looks like to talk as God is your refuge. And then the psalmist continues. He continues in verse 7 to say, I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love. There's something that the attack of the enemies can't take away, and that is that God loves you. That he is steadfast in his love for you. He cares for you. And he sees your affliction. He's not indifferent to your pain, although it feels like it. The one who takes refuge in God talks this way. God, you see me. You know me. And I can rejoice and be glad because your love has not quit. It is steadfast. That's what it sounds like when someone has made God their refuge. But... What tempts us more than anything to not make God our refuge? It is the pain that we go through in everyday life. We're tempted in those moments to say, God, where are you? You're not there. I've been abandoned. I feel alone. You're tempted to say those things. You don't have purposes here. This seems pointless. What is going on? That's many times how suffering is tempted it, we are tempted to talk in suffering. And the psalmists, what we get to see is we get to see both his bad way of talking and the good way. But ultimately, the second point is where we are now in that the psalmist ultimately wants us to see that in our suffering, in your suffering, in my suffering, Jesus is more loving, just, and good than I can comprehend. 
And so not only will I rest in him because he is more secure than anything else I could put my hope in, but he's also more loving, just, and good than I can truly understand. And so even though I don't understand, I rest in him. So what I want to do is I just want to take those three words that God is good, that God is just, and that God is loving. And I believe that's a way to kind of shape these last verses of Psalm 31 is the psalmist really wants through all of his meanderings wants us to see that God is good, that God is just, and that God is loving. Now, why did I break up the psalm this way? I think you need to understand. Verses 1 through 8 are actually a reflection of the psalmist looking backwards. Looking backwards on a time when God delivered him. Do you hear him talking that way? He says, you have known the distress of my soul, verse 7. You have not handed me over into the hands of my enemy, and you have set my feet on a broad place. There's this experience that he has had with God when God showed up. God worked in his life, and so he is rehearsing that. He is trying to help his heart by remembering the past. And that's a beautiful way to deal with suffering is to reflect on when God has shown up, when God has answered prayers, when you were filled with faith and you saw God move. But now verses 9 through 24, he is in a present suffering. He is not being delivered and he is calling out to God. And he is asking for God to move. And he truly doesn't know whether God will on this earth deliver him. But what he does know is that by God being his refuge, he is safe in God's arms. No matter the outcome, he is safe in God's arms. But it's so beautiful to see the psalmist's journey here. Because what he first wants to teach us is that God is good. And this is a journey for the psalmist. He struggles to see that in the midst of his pain, that God is good. So I want to take you to the punchline where he says God is good, and then I want to take you backwards when he wasn't acting like God was good, okay? Verse 19. Look at verse 19. Here's what the psalmist says. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who, what? There's our phrase, take refuge in you. He is working for those who take refuge in you. He is storing up goodness for those who take refuge in him. That means I want to be taking refuge in him. How abundant is your goodness? Now, what is this phrase goodness? Goodness is this sense that God is doing what is best for his people to thrive to be blessed, and to find happiness and joy. I'll say it again. When we say God is good, it means that He is doing, no matter how we feel or no matter what we understand, He is doing what is best for His people to thrive, to be blessed, and to find joy and happiness. That's what it means for God to be good. And yet I want you to look at verses 11 through 13 because he didn't start there. As many times we suffer, what happens is it's almost like a car that's out of gas 
and it's in neutral, and now it's going down a hill. And it just starts going, and it's hard to stop. What am I meaning? When we struggle, when we suffer, what we do is we rehearse all the things that are going wrong in our life. It's, it's this incessant thinking about how hard things are, about how we've been mistreated, about how difficult our life is, about how we wish things were different, and we just begin to rehearse over and over all these things. And that's the only thing that keeps running in the brain. Well, that's what was happening with the psalmist. Look at verse 11. He says, Because all of my adversaries, I have become a reproach. He just feels hated, especially to my neighbors. I'm an object of dread to even my acquaintances. Even the people that don't know me well, they don't want to be around me. And those who see me in the street, they run from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead, it says in verse 12. I have become like a broken vessel, for I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side. As they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. Do you hear? Do you hear the talk? He's just saying what all bad has happened to him. Let's just take each phrase and you can identify with each one. He says, I've been forgotten like one who is dead. He feels alone. I feel like nobody understands me. I feel like nobody knows what I'm going through. I feel alone. You've said these things. You felt these things. You know these things. He says, I've become, verse 12, like a broken vessel. What's a broken vessel? It's not useful. Right? It's broken. You pour water in a broken vessel, it leaks. And you felt that way. I feel totally useless. Like I'm not important to anybody. Like I can't contribute anything. I'm weak. I'm weary. I'm broken. And you just talk about it. And then he says in verse 13, I hear whispering. You feel like people are talking about you. People are thinking bad about you. People are against you. You've thought these things and you just rehearse this and you think this and you say this. And then we even see that some are plotting against him. What's that? You think that people are against you and some are. Some are saying bad things about you or some are working not for your good but trying to make life harder for you. And then you go down to verse 22 and listen to what he says. I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. What's that phrase mean? I have said in my alarm. I don't talk that way and I don't know what it means. Well, I didn't know what it means. I do now. So I'll tell you. How's that? In my alarm. It could also be translated in my haste or in my hurried heart. I just spoke. Have you been there? I didn't think. I didn't process it. I was just angry. I was just upset. I was just flooded with emotion. And I just talked. And here's what came out of his mouth when that happened. He says, I'm just cut off from your sight, God. You don't even see my pain. It's like you're not even looking in. Accurate or not, that's how I feel. And it says he spoke that, not in self-control, but he spoke it just with a raw emotion with an opened up heart. And friends, 
We know what it's like just to say what's on our mind. We know what it's like to just constantly say all the things that are going wrong. And friends, it's like a drug. It feeds. We feel sorry for ourselves. We try to get others to feel sorry for us. And it's just, it can be depressing. And friends, I want you to know that the cross gives us a better answer for our suffering and our pain. Rehearsing bad things is not the answer. The answer for the psalmist was not to say that those bad things don't exist. It was to take them and turn them into prayer. But I promise you this, it will not solve your problem to continue to complain in your heart and in your mind about how bad things are. The other day I was driving, and as I was driving, I was in an area of town that I didn't know very well, and I came up to this sign that said, and it was a huge sign, you know, signs look small when you're in the car and then you go stand next to them, they're big, right? They're big signs. And it said, dead end. Well, for whatever reason... I began to think that I was smarter than the sign. I began to think, no, I've looked at the map. I really think this is not a dead end. This is, this is wrong somehow, and this is going to lead for me to get to where I need to go. So I drive right past the sign, and as I drive, guess what I see? A dead end. It's like trees and a forest and it's not going to lead me where I need to go. There's curbing, so my car can't actually even get into the forest, even if I wanted to keep going. It was a dead end. And no matter how much I tried to convince myself this was the way, I had to eventually say, the sign is right, and the only way to find where I'm going is to turn around and to go the other way. I want to promise you this. To continue to rehearse the difficulties of your life and to not fight to redirect your mind to who God is, it is always a dead end. You can say, I know better than the sign. You can say, I know better and I'm just going to let my mind keep going there. I'm just going to keep rehearsing the evil. Keep rehearsing all that's bad to me, but I promise you this, it will not satisfy you and it will not fix your pain. We have to be humble enough to acknowledge that that is a dead-end path and that God says, I want to be your refuge. That can't be your refuge. I want to be your refuge. And so we have a choice. Will we redirect our mind to say who God is, to meditate upon his word, and to say true things about who God is? Well, the psalmist chose that route. Look at verse 14, right after he had just been meandering all over the place with his emotions. He says, verse 14, but I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. That's another way of saying you're my refuge. My chips are in with you. You are my only hope. And then he goes on to say in verse 15, my times are in your hand. It means there's not one dot on his timeline from beginning to end that is not in the Lord's hands. God, you have given me life and you will use me until my purposes, your purpose for me is done and then you will take my life. Every part of my life from beginning to end is in your hand. My times are in your hand. This is what the psalmist is saying. 
He trusts God. He trusts that his times are in God's hands and that God is going to do what is best. Verse 16, he says, Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. What is this? Make your face shine. He's, he's reflecting on the Old Testament of the Pentateuch when Numbers, when that prayer is uttered by the priests. And he says, make your face to shine upon me. Let the light of your goodness shine into this dark situation. Give me some understanding. Expose the evil. Get rid of the pain. Shine into this moment and show that you are enough and that you are with me. It's hard. I know it is. It's hard to go there. It's hard to redirect the mind. I was helped so much by a dear brother of mine who was going through this journey. His name is Tim Kane. He actually preached here one time. He's a, a, a pastor of part of, of a church in San Diego um, called Kaleo at El Cajon. And El Cajon's the little town that they are in. And Tim is in the adoption process. He and his wife, Abby, uh, could not have children, and so they have adopted two children through foster care. But now they are trying their hand at their first international adoption. And so the way international adoptions uh, work, uh, we've adopted two from uh, overseas, and the way international adoptions work is, you know, you do all this work, and then you just sit and wait until they place you with a child. And when they place you, then you have to stop everything that you're doing and get to that country as quickly as you can. So this was the situation with him. He had gone through all his paperwork and everything, and then they got a referral for a little girl. And in one week, they had to be in Uganda to get this little girl. And they were going to stay in Uganda for five weeks. So you get one week notice for the next six weeks of your life to be totally different. So they packed up, they left, they go to Uganda, and the day that they land, jet lagged and all, they're ushered into the Ugandan court and they are granted legal custody of this precious little girl whose name is Maggie. And Maggie is now a Cain. That's their last name, Tim and Abby Cain. Not Cain and Abel, okay? If you have biblical paradigms for that. Maggie's a precious little girl and she is theirs. But... She's not theirs in the eyes of the United States. The way it works is you have to be granted custody in the country, and then you have to be granted custody in the states where you're coming back to so that they can come back into the states. Well, they were planning that all of that would be solved as they were told that it would be within five weeks. I get a call, and five weeks is going to have to turn into six months. And they have been over there now for six months waiting on this little girl to be granted the ability to come back into the States. And then my brother called me with tears and he said, we were praying that the lawyers would be able to solve this. And he said, the lawyer looked at me the other day and he says, there's one in a hundred that I can't solve. And this is one of those one in a hundred. He said, I'm not even going to charge you because I can't do anything. 
So they had to send the case off to Rome. Rome will not look at the case for six months. And once they look at it, it could take a year to a year and a half to even solve the situation. They're looking at up to two years more of being in Uganda. When poor Abby heard this, she, Tim was actually in San Diego meeting with the lawyer and Abby was back in Uganda with her three kids. When she heard this, Tim said that he could hear her leaning over in the bushes throwing up. Just saying, no, 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 why no? And it was a sense of, God, we're trying to, we're trying to be faithful. We're trying to do what you would have us do. Why? Why? It's a question we all ask when we go through pain. And why? But as it is, when we go through suffering, God meets us in ways that we would not be able to comprehend or understand were we to not have to have gone through the pain. And it was in that moment that God struck Tim and Abby with this precious image of our Savior. Our Savior who left glory to come to a foreign land and to live for 33 years of mocking and ridicule, to die a death that he didn't deserve in order that you and I could be his children. And God struck Tim and Abby with the sentence of, if God would do that to us, that we might be adopted into his family, what is two years that this precious girl could know the love of a father for a child and be brought into ours? Suffering has a way of ripping away things that we have held on too tightly to. Tim's a pastor of a church like I am. It would be like the pastors of this church coming and saying, I'm not going to be able to be with you for two years. I hope I can come back. He's only got one other pastor and all of that weight is thrown on that one other pastor's shoulders. And you're just like, God, what are you doing? But friends, when we go through suffering, and Tim has said this, I was holding too tightly to the church. I was believing that I was the church's savior. I was believing that I was the answer to everybody's problems. Suffering has a way of righting the ship, showing you where your refuge is is to be found where the only place hope can be stored up. It's in a Savior. A Savior who died a death that he did not deserve for you who did deserve death. That you might have life and you might be made a child. And through that suffering, you will be reminded over and over again that he loves you. And although you don't understand it, and although you ask why, time and time again, he says over and over, I love you. And I am good to you. And I am executing only good for you even though you can't understand it. Trust me. Friends, we have to, in the midst of our pain, go to the cross and process all of our suffering and redirect our hearts away from the rehearsing of evil and the rehearsing of bad being done to us and set our minds on the victory that has been one of us on the cross and by the empty tomb because Jesus is alive. And that means there's point to our suffering. 
There is good that's being done even though we can't understand it. Oh, dear friends, I tell you, in your pain, even though you don't know, God is at work. This past week, I was really trying to get up with a person that I could not get up with for almost two months. I was emailing and contacting and we, we could just not get together. They were not responding and it was because they were trying to avoid a tense conversation. And, but I knew I needed to talk to them, just knew it was faithful and I didn't know how to do it. And so I just kept praying for them, but I had no idea how this would happen. So totally unrelated, my car breaks down. You've had that, you know, it's usually you don't expect your car to kind of break down on a Monday and you have to get it fixed, so you have to go get it fixed. And so I took my car to get fixed and usually it's going to take a long time. They tell you it's going to take a long time. Well, they got done early. Well, I was really thankful. Mechanic did a great job, got done early. And I was like, what am I going to do? Well, then my wife calls and she says, Sean, your mom is called. And she wants to take me out to lunch for my birthday. Would you like to come along? And I was like, sweet. It's a free meal. I'm all over it. So, um, so yeah, so I met them at this place to eat. And totally wasn't obviously on my agenda because I was planning on being at the mechanic. So we go and we end up at this restaurant and we sit down and eat. And as I'm sitting there, I look over and there's this person. Person that for two months I couldn't get up with. So I knew that they really didn't want to talk to me, which makes it awkward, but I knew I needed to go talk to them. So I went and I talked to them, and they began to share how the only reason they were there, they've actually never been to this place. The only reason they were there was because the hurricane came through, and the power was out in their house, and they couldn't study at their home for the test that was coming up. And so the only thing they knew to do was to go to this nearby restaurant and to use the Wi-Fi and to study. And that's what brought this person there. It's not chance, friends. There's a God who says, every dot on the timeline is in my hands. You call out to me. You take refuge in me. And you trust that I have a purpose and a point for everything that's happening. I remember when I was in college, one of my many majors that I had, I was a music major. And I was a vocal performance major. So I was supposed to, for my degree, sing in front of people for a grade. It's the craziest thing in the world. So I'm, this is a religious school, and so they have chapel. And so I was supposed to stand in chapel, and I was supposed to sing. So the song they gave me was Be Thou My Vision. Okay? So I go to sing it. I had to get all dressed up in a tux. I'm not, like, not used to that. So I'm sitting there singing, and... While I'm singing, be thou my vision, all of a sudden, this is what comes out. Thou and, and I'm not going to try to sing good, so it says, thou and thou only. My voice just hit puberty in the middle of a thousand people watching me sing. It was a nightmare. I was like, you know, why? Why did this happen? There were girls out there I was trying to impress. There, was prof there were professors that were grading my performance. And all of a sudden, puberty hits in the middle of thou and thou only. Lord, help me. It was bad. And so, like, why did that happen? Well, first of all, 
I really didn't have a clue what I was singing, really. I was worried about the performance. I was worried about how I looked. I was worried about what people thought about me. What was God doing? He was allowing my voice to crack. He could have kept it from cracking. He was allowing my voice to crack that I might let go of some of the love of what people thought of me and I might set my heart fully upon him. If you're a child, just know that he is never against you. He's not against you. He might have to discipline you, but that's what a good daddy does. He doesn't just let you determine your own path. He tells you what a good path is. He's good. And he loves you. And so when you're going through trial, you can know that although you don't understand, he has a good purpose for you. And friends, the psalmist was also struggling with, will those people who are constantly against me ever Will it ever be shown that they were doing wrong to me? Because that's what the sufferer wants at times. They just, will it, am I living for something that's pointless? And will the people, will the wrong ever be shown that it's wrong? And he says here in verse 17, Lord, let me not be put to shame for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to shale. Let the lying lips be mute which speak insolent against the righteous in pride and contempt. What's he saying? There will come a day when the wrongs will be exposed as wrong. And it will be shown on that day that when you lived for the Lord, it was not in vain. You will not be put to shame on that last day. And so not only is our God good, but our God is just. And not only is our God just, but he is loving And this is where the psalmist ends in verse 21. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me. I don't know if you know this, but this psalm, the more I studied it, it is several times throughout the scriptures. Do you know Jonah prays a portion of this psalm when he's going through pain? Jeremiah prays a portion of this psalm when he's going through pain? David obviously is praying this psalm in his pain, but we have one more that we see prayed this psalm because this psalm is a sufferer's psalm. It's what it means when someone suffers. And tell me if you've heard this this verse before. It's verse 5. Into your hand I commit my spirit. Who prayed those words? Jesus did. Those were his last words before he breathed his last And said, it is finished. Into your hands I commit my spirit. He prayed and then he died. Our Savior identifies with our suffering. He understands our pain. And I don't know about you, but like with my parents, I knew they were good people and I knew that they were kind. But it wasn't until I became a parent myself and I experienced the difficulty of staying up late and helping with homework or constantly driving around to all of these places or trying to shepherd a heart and make decisions that don't feel like they have a right or wrong. It's just good, better, and best. It's only when I went through some of those pains, when I had the grief of what it was to see a child making some wrong decisions or not doing what was right, it was only then that I began to appreciate everything that they did on my behalf. 
And when we hear Jesus died for us, it's just like, well, that was really nice of him. That was good. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for me. But when we go through suffering, all of a sudden, when we are abandoned and rejected, it makes us understand his love that much more when he voluntarily chose to be abandoned and rejected for you. Think about your pain. You don't want it. You want to run away from it. You want nothing to do with it. You do not choose it. Our Savior chose it. He chose the abandonment. He chose to be misunderstood. He chose to suffer hunger. He chose to be ridiculed. He chose to be unjustly accused. He chose to be abandoned by those closest to him and by his Father so that you and I might have life forever. And so he asks you, as you share in his sufferings, turn from your sin if sin is the reason. But some of you are suffering just because you're following the Lord. And it's hard. And in that, you trust him. You trust that he's doing good because the cross tells us so. He's overcome the grave. And he is only doing good to us. So verse 23 and 24 say, love the Lord. Love the Lord. Verse 24, be strong and let your heart take courage because the Lord is your refuge and you can rest in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time to be together and I just pray that you would help my dear brothers and sisters to find their rest and hope in you. When we feel insecure about everything around us, I pray, Father, that what we would make our primary ambition is to be holy before the Lord. We would seek to hate sin and to run away from it. We would seek to love the Lord with all of our heart and to be strong and of great courage. Father, please, I pray, Give us a sense of hope. Give us a sense of courage. And when we're tempted to rehearse all the bad that is happening to us, would you help us to read the sign that says this is dead end path? And would we turn around and trust in you? Redirect our hearts and set our hearts upon the truths that are in your word about you and who you are for us. You are good, you are just, and you are loving even when I can't understand it. And so I will rest. I will make you my refuge. I will rest in you. So Father, may this be our declaration as we take the Lord's Supper in these last few minutes of just meditation on these things. Help us to apply it to our heart. May there be one thing that we take away from this time. Something that you want us to surrender. Something that you want us to celebrate. Something that you want us to be thankful for someone that you want us to pursue, whatever it is, Father, please. May the pain that we're going through only be used to help us to rest in you and to give away the comfort that you give us to others who are going through similar trials. Father, please, quiet our souls and quicken our hearts that we might find rest in you. So now as we take the Lord's Supper, this is a time that you can just declare your need, your happiness, the victory that's yours in the cross, how God is for you and not against you. Declare whatever you need to. If you are not a believer in this room, this meal is not for you because it's saying, God, as messed up as I am, I, I, I want you to be my refuge. And if you can't say that, if you don't 
think that Jesus is the one that is the only one that can save you from your sins, then declare that in this moment. But don't take of the bread and the cup because it's a declaration that Christ is your only hope.